Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Kelly Stewart. Welcome to the Think Orphan podcast, where we seek to help you navigate the orphan crisis with experts from around the world. Phil, we have a great show today. I can't wait for people to hear the interview you had with our guests. So why don't you just go ahead and tell us what we are going to have in store today? Yeah, so it's another great show, um, and I am so excited for you to hear from Victor Marks. But before um, you hear from Victor, I want to do something that is long overdue. I want to thank Paul Blackman, who is the man behind the voice that you hear at the beginning and the end of every podcast. It's also the guy who makes this podcast sound as good as it does. He's, he's the production guy, the sound editor. He does everything behind the scenes to make this show happen. And I just want to say a huge thank you. And I know all you out there um, owe a lot to him because it sounds so much better in your uh, headphones or on your computer or whatever it is. You are trust me, you're thankful for this man. So thanks, Paul. And I am just thankful we got him on this show. Um, so Back to Victor. Victor Marks is the founder and president of All Things Possible Ministries. He's a global speaker. The guy's a high-risk missions leader, and you'll find out what that means in his interviews. Uh, He's just an all-around great guy. He's one of my great friends. Um, But so many of you out there may know him as the fastest gun disarm guy. I think it has like 20 million views on YouTube. So if you haven't seen it, you got to check it out. You can see the link is on the the show notes for this show. But uh, more than that, he is so much, so much more than all those things. This guy, as you'll hear, has an amazing story. Um, and he just, quite frankly, he just has a lot that we can learn from. So I am just excited for you to hear these, this two-part interview. The first part you'll hear today, and the next part you'll hear next week, and I know you'll want to come back for that one. So get your notes out and enjoy this interview I was able to have with Victor. Victor, it is so great to have you here on the show today. Well, thank you for the opportunity to be here, brother. Yeah, Victor, you know, this this is I'm so excited for this interview because there's there's few times uh, that I get to do this on the show, which is interview one of my really, really good friends who's doing amazing things. I've had a lot of good friends, but you, my brother, over the last few years have been someone who's inspired me in so many different ways, who's encouraged me in so many different ways. And so I'm so excited for everyone out there to be able to similarly be encouraged by you and equipped by what God has been teaching you uh, over your life. And so before we get into kind of the specifics, I would uh, just love for you to be able to share and introduce yourself to those people out there who don't know you. So just, you know, briefly share your story, including how you got to be doing what you're doing with All Things Possible Ministries. Yeah, you bet. Well, my name is Victor Marks with an X. Uh, I came from a challenge background as as a child. Uh, you know, I ended up going to 14 different schools, lived in 17 different houses. My biological dad actually didn't claim me as his kid. And uh, as a result, you know, there was tons of insecurity, uh, uh, that sense of rejection. And then being in an unstable environment uh, really made me pray for, uh, I would just say, you know, evil. And I, I suffered abuse as a child. Um, uh, including what the therapist had to uh, help me understand was literal torture by electrocution or water dunking, 
And then um, I was left for dead when I was five years old in a commercial cooler. So I think the reality of that uh, coupled with trying to find my way and journey through life with such a jacked up background and using, you know, minimization and coping skills uh, and then just excelling as much as I could uh, as a means to keep the beach ball what I call the beach ball underwater <clears throat> hmm. and uh, hoping that no one would know and and that I would just continue to try to forget everything that had happened by pressing on. Uh, but yet it, it really caused tremendous instability, resulting in 123 visits to a trauma specialist, um, you know, drug, drug use and high-risk behavior uh, that was unhealthy and that didn't have an, you know, really – um, value to it. It was just the, the rush of it all. And, and then carried it into my marriage, um, which I'm very grateful for a woman and a wife who became my bride and stuck with me. And as a result, you know, we've been able to help others uh, through you know a book and then a film um, that's just called The Victim Mark Story. It's in 15 languages on YouTube now. And um, people can order it as well. But it, it's accessible and it's been really effective uh, in our YouTube channel. Now I was just looking at stats. We're over 30 million hmm. views on the whole channel, which, which is really great for not only impact, but we see good outcomes as a result of a, a challenge background. Yeah. Yeah. And I encourage everyone out there to check out, we'll, we'll put the link on the show notes for the show, but the, the movie, um, that uh, the Victor Mark story and with God, all things are possible um, is on YouTube. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, documentary on Victor's life. It goes into a lot more detail about the things that uh, you just talked about, uh, Victor. And, and so everyone out there, check it out. And um, we'll talk a little bit more about your story as we, as we go through this interview. So with that, you know, what, what work is All Things Possible doing? It's, it's grown over the last few years um, <laughs> substantially, tremendously. <laughs> yeah. I know it's blown you away. It's blown me away to watch, to see what God's been doing. But can you just share a little bit about what uh, ATP is all about? Yeah, you know, I mean, you remember when you and I were going into, you know, a juvenile prison mm -hmm. and reaching small groups of uh, kids who've been incarcerated for various reasons from you know, uh, truancy, drug abuse, all the way to murder. Uh, and using my story basically as the platform and my martial arts background to try to touch their hearts and give them hope. Uh, and uh, from there, we just, we kept our hand to the plow. We're very intentional. We have the favor of God in an amazing group of supporters and partners for ATP um, that now has allowed us over these 14 years to be in over 1,000 juvenile facilities, either by person, book, or film, uh, with great with great reach. And as a result, we I think we we're now over 6,000 letters that have been handwritten hmm. from children and youth who have been locked up in the U.S. And we've written all of them back, uh, uh, you know, and it's been. It's been really cool, and we've written them back by hand. Um, the vast majority, uh, certainly over uh, the, the sum of time. So we, but now 
I mean, it kept growing to where, you know, I was invited to do visit overseas, which I'm like the most unmissionary ish <laughs> type. Per- I mean, <laughs> I remember before I was a Christian and then early on, I would look at missionaries and go, yeah, that's the people who couldn't get a real job and uh, had to <laughs> had to flee uh, and go overseas and have people pay them. You know, uh, the Christian welfare cases overseas. Uh, that was really, I remember I said that at a missionary conference and they all, they were dying laughing. I said, you know, it's true. That's how some people think. But the resulting, uh, I mean, the results of spending time working overseas and working with missionaries is, man, the vast majority is what I would call the special forces yeah. of Christianity who embrace suffering and I've uh, learned to deny themselves. I've learned to uh, work and raise funds in, you know, so it's a, uh, it'd be like a person at home who works at a plant. They've actually got to go raise their money to go work at a plant, mm-hmm. you know, um, and uh, the heartache and challenges that come with it. So it, I just have the greatest respect for, for missionaries, and, and even though you know we've now been called high risk missionaries, and some of the work we do, I just I don't even feel worthy to, to call ourselves you know uh, missionaries. But I, I thank God for them. Yeah, and and we'll tell us a little bit, and we'll get into the details of it later. But just briefly, you mentioned the high risk missions and the high risk work that that all things possible has gone from working in some youth prisons. Yep. And some at-risk uh, inner-city schools yep. around the U.S. Yep. to somehow working in Burma and <laughs> Iraq right. and other places. Yeah. What what is that about? Well, we were privileged to be invited to uh, go to different locations to help extend our reach. So it it hasn't been a change of mission. It's just been an extension of you know what we call our tent pegs mm-hmm. um, and. We're still reaching trouble, abuse, and hurting youth. Right. Uh, but man, the, the harvest field has expanded. I was privileged to be the first American to go into a juvenile prison in Iraq. Hmm. And we, we really beta tested whether my story and our approach would work. And it was so effective for outcomes that uh, we still to this day have uh, people from Iraq, northern Iraq, and even uh, one of the young men that was locked up in that youth prison following us on social media. Hmm. So now that he's out, so, you know, we just, we started going there and, uh, we, we did get a invitation from the Kurdistan regional government, uh, through some friends to try to help them with girls and, uh, you know, kids that had been held captive by ISIS, uh, to help with trauma relief because the country and the government, you know, one, were overwhelmed because of um, the effect of ISIS rolling into their major cities, taking over, and then just the, the, the genocide, the brutality, the murders, the sex trafficking, right. uh, it overwhelmed them. So, you know, we brought a response team in there, a quick response team, and saw the vast need of those who had suffered from trauma. And our goal was just to help these girls not end their lives uh, because they were having a, 
an influx. And that was the main reason. It's like, can you help us with these young girls and women? Because they're, they're killing themselves right. and we know how to stop it. So that, that was when we really got introduced to the whole extremism, you know, extremism right. uh, uh, effects. And we've been privileged to be able to now, I think, I think as of this month, we've done somewhere around 14 direct uh, operations and missions, uh, bringing teams into Syria, Iraq, Kurdistan, Turkey, uh, rescuing uh, those that are being held captive by ISIS through, uh, you know, uh, uh, working with the Peshmerga or the Iraqi soldiers. Uh, I mean, it was two weeks ago, I think I was actually in Mosul. Uh, being shot at and mortared at and as we're trying to just help those who had uh, were being held captive by ISIS in uh, part of a neighborhood in a city and uh, it, it's uh, it's opened our eyes to the plight of suffering and, the, and to the extent that evil's willing to uh, you know push on innocent people and and truly when when good people do nothing you know it 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 does increase uh, the, the the propensity for evil to be carried out right. in, in unbelievable ways. Yeah, yeah. It, I, I want to dive into. The, I want to come back to that later in the in the interview. But just come back to the the work in Iraq in particular that's been that you've been able to do over the last little bit. But before we get back to that, I want to go back to the kind of the youth prisons, the inner city schools, and also you know when you're going. Whether it's in Iraq or the U.S., um, you're just a, a guy from from the Bayou, yep. um, you know, who has had some life experiences, and and those life experiences, and I watch, and I think I said something to you back when I went to the in Ohio, you walk into this youth prison, and you connected with these kids in ways that I just was blown away, and I think I said to you afterwards something to the effect of, "I've never seen someone more in his sweet spot than you were there that day," mm-hmm. and. What do you think it is um, about your life experience? What do you think it is that you that God has done in, in and through you um, that allows you to and enables you to connect with these kids? Many of you have, who have been abused and encountered severe trauma in their lives, and many of whom you've actually described as a bunch of kids who hate you and mm-hmm. hate life. Mm-hmm. How do you get into that? Yeah, you know what? There's a there's a brotherhood. There's a fraternity. There's a there's a community of those of us who've suffered uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse, or, I mean, emotional, spiritual. Uh, people really understand abuse. And I think when young people and older alike see that you're not a subject matter expert to come and fix them, mm-hmm. but you're actually coming to feel their heart step into their pain, um, then all of a sudden there's instant credibility and trust because you can, you can come to people who are hurting with all the right answers, but it doesn't make it right. And it's, it's, uh, you you know, I, I think of it as someone who's got the flu, uh, you know, or, you know, an infection and, here comes a doctor with a needle, you know, he, he, he's got the penicillin. Hey, let, let me just hit you with this thing. And, uh, it doesn't mean it's going to work or they're going to want to receive it. It's like, are you kidding me? 
but you know, you get somebody who uh, understands what it's like to be hit with that needle, the pain of it, mm-hmm. and even knowing that the benefit is in it, but has learned to repackage, rebrand, reapproach uh, the the art, science, and uh, the miracle of healing. Maybe it's through an oral. You know, maybe it's through a little cream. You know, uh, not everyone's ready for this big, you know, 10-gauge needle. And people who've been hurt and wounded, and and I, it doesn't matter if they're locked up in a juvenile facility. Uh, they, I mean, they could be an absolute top athlete, professional athlete, mm-hmm. uh, a CEO of a company, um, a general at the Pentagon, doesn't matter. Uh, their coping mechanisms will will kick in, and a lot of people end up being one percenters. In either way, extreme. In either way, so I just I just think that uh, compassion and love and understanding uh, goes a lot longer than just clinical. You know, uh, well, this is what's wrong. This is what you need to do. And and there's definitely time to kick somebody in the butt. Don't right. get me wrong. Right. Uh, but I'm just talking in general uh, when dealing with people in your circle of influence, uh, whether it's a family member or whether it's someone that you work with or you're trying to reach. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that, uh, you know, I, I definitely watched that what you say you enter in and you you were able to come into this room and you have some pretty cool tricks now don't, don't get me wrong you have some pretty cool tricks that you get to get some attention I got skills you got I some got stuff skills. like the fastest gun disarm the world's ever seen I think or something like that is what it says on YouTube like right. 80 million or something views by now um, but at the end of the day what I saw in that in that room and this is something I want everyone out there to hear what exactly what you just said you had to enter in and you entered into some of the hardest kids I've seen mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I'm sure you've seen a lot harder, but they started, you walk in and they had this look like what you got for me, man. You got, you, you don't know me. You don't know anything about me. And by the end of that day, some of those hardest kids were the ones balling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and well, and you know what? I, if, if people want to help people, I mean, someone who's listening right now to your podcast, and they know, oh, my gosh, you know, there's someone I'm trying to reach. Or that. You don't have to be the expert. Right. You just got to be, you know, they just got to know you care and are nonjudgmental. And, uh, and I, you know, I use platforms to get kids' attention. But all that is is getting them to open a door. And beyond that, if, if you don't have compassion, love, sincerity – They'll slam the door on you. Right. Um, and I was thinking of when you were just talking, I was thinking about I did this huge Christian event, uh, mega concert, right? It was in Colorado. And when we came in, uh, it was just thousands. But but a, a local area abuse uh, home for kids, they they had asked my staff, is there any way we could you know, get Victor to take a private audience with a small group of kids. So like, sure. So they brought them. We have them uh, really backstage, but it was underneath the tent, super hot. And it, you know, it was, it was a hard age group. Cause I mean, it was like literally 
six-year-olds, seven-year-olds to teenagers. So it was like, ah, they bring them in. That's probably 20 of them. And I'm talking to them, Phil, and I'm not getting to them. I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, I've got to switch my mindset from being a platform speaker, you know, martial arts demonstrator to I'm, I'm here I need this tent outside with these kids and, and I'm losing them. Right. Uh, and then I just, I mean, I was just honest with the Lord going, this stinks. I'm, I'm not doing well here. Help me. And I really just sensed the Holy spirit say, sit down. I was like, uh, there's no chairs. Yeah. Sit in the dirt. Cause that's where, the majority of these kids, they're just sitting in the dirt. They're in a hot tent. There's no chairs. You have some teens stand up, but these kids are basically sitting in the dirt. But here I am in my nice outfit, you know, getting ready to go on the big platform. And I was thinking, you know, if I sit down, I'm going to be covered dirty. And I thought, yeah, I could care less. Boom, I plopped my butt on the ground, got dirty. All of a sudden, it instantly changed. It hmm. instantly changed. And... Again, you know, I don't know if they teach that and you know, at the higher levels of academia, <laughs> but it works with uh when you want to reach people that are hurting. Right, right. And can you connect the dots? I mean, we are a Think Orphan podcast, so some people out there are going, Okay, that's fine for the kids in prison. But can you connect yep. the dots for people who may not I'm sure I'm hoping most out there get the connection, but I want you to be able to just connect the dots and share with them as you and I have talked about over the years, but how the work you're doing in youth prisons and at-risk communities is interconnected and intimately connected with the orphan care and fatherlessness work that the many many listeners to this show are entering into daily. Oh my gosh, it's uh, I mean, what an education I got. You know, it was never my intention just you know to reach out to those who are orphaned or lacking parents. I I just want to reach the greatest population of troubled, abused, and hurting youth. Mm -hmm. And initially, we found it in youth facilities. And then, well, it's group homes. And, and then, you know, and it started expanding. And and then it's overseas. And, you know, they say now 14 million kids will be affected globally by ISIS or extremism. And, you know, I definitely, well, here's a great example. The warden in that youth prison, when I asked him about why are these kids here, he, and this is, you know, northern Iraq, uh, he just goes, the breakdown of the family. Mm. They, don't, they, they don't have family. And um, it's such a rich harvest field if people will just see the value in caring for orphans. However, that looks, you know, right. and and uh, there's that scripture in the Bible on defiled religion, you know, widows and orphans. Yeah. I don't know how I could get more clearer than that. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, when and when I mentioned that scripture at men's events, they, I actually men start applauding because yeah. yeah, all of a sudden that's their call to arms, that's their purpose, that's a passion that they can get behind. However, that looks right prayer, support, and uh, people who are listening who maybe aren't even in the field, but, th you know, I just say get behind prayerfully and financially uh, 
in a way that supports organizations or people or individuals that really are making a difference in that space. And I'm not talking about me, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm talking about, uh, you know, others that, that, that are out there, ask God and, uh, and he'll show them because they need the help. They need the support. They need, you know, the care. And you talked about speaking to men's groups. You do that on a regular basis in in connection with this. Um, speaking of, if you're out there looking for a great speaker at a men's event, Victor is, is second to none. So, um, but I've often said that we could alleviate most of the orphan crisis if we could just disciple males to be no godly doubt. men. No doubt. So I'm assuming you agree with that. So oh why? Why? Tell me from well, your experience. You know, I remember. <laughs> I remember the first time I made this statement after dealing with extremists and ISIS and you know all all this stuff. And coming back to the U.S., I was at a men's event. It was packed. And I just said, the greatest, I mean, the greatest danger and risk to the United States, it isn't terrorism. It's the lack of a father in the home. It's the lack of men being really godly men and making a difference. Hmm. I mean, on every level of society. And if... uh, and that's, you know, as we say, that it's a hard truth, Rabbi. Right. But if, if people would understand that and let, let, let their love for children and for what's right and honorable start in their home. And you and I have talked about this. We're dads of big families. Mm-hmm. It's never about perfection. Mm-hmm. It's just about direction. Are you heading in the right direction? You know, and for many people, uh, there are men out there who, you know, just bail. My, I mean, my biological dad was one of them. Didn't claim me as his kid, right? And mm-hmm. later in life, we it was a letter that he wrote to me saying, in essence, I'm sorry I was never there for you um, as a dad. And I, I think I was around 20 when I got that letter or something. And do you know, uh, even though he wasn't a he wasn't a dad to me at all as a as a child, he became a, a father to me as a young adult and as a man hmm. and and we actually had a good you know good 20 years together uh he was actually even uh my best man in my wedding right. so i would just say to dads man if you've jacked up messed up blown up regroup man regroup uh catch your breath humble yourself apologize and then do your very best to be a dad even if you're not a husband, even if that's not going to work out, mm. but be a dad, right. be honest. I remember, you know, I have five children. When, when our kids at the teenage years, I think at one point we had three of our children were teenagers in our home. And I was like, are you kidding me? And then my wife was pregnant again, hormone. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I want to be a missionary, a solo road, <laughs> Man, you know, <laughs> let me get. But uh, I, I remember I had a, tie in with one of my youngins, a teenager that uh, just, uh, you know, when you're just butting heads and yep. you're going, geez, the Benadryl didn't work. <laughs> and and I, I, I'm i looking at my teenager and I finally just said, stop. Look, I've never been a dad to a teenager. Hmm. Man, I, I don't even know what the hell I'm doing. Right. I, I'm trying to figure this out. Can you help me? I mean, I remember being a teenager, yeah. but I didn't, I didn't have a dad help me so forgive me 
help me understand you. What you know? Let let's work this out. That was one of the biggest turning points for that kid to go. Oh wow, you're you're not just some jerk trying to enforce rules and regulations on me. You're trying to figure this out with love and care, and uh, and compassion, just like the kids you reach. Right. I was like, okay, good. That worked. I got to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. No, and that's something that I think is so critical for us to all understand, just that the importance of dads, the importance. And I know that uh, Dwight Taylor is another guy who we inter- I interviewed a few weeks ago, and he he said you know, something very, very similar, just uh, and the importance of dads, something we talk about so often, the importance of men being men um, mm. in in this movement is, is massive. So I want to shift gears a little bit and go to some specifics, some things that you've talked about over the years. Um, in, in your talks, in your, uh, the different work that you've been doing. Um, and one is the idea of, uh, lies based in reality, you know, yep. when, when talking about, um, the verbal abuse, the other abuse that you had during your childhood, what do you mean by that? And why are the lies potentially so damaging in a child's life? Yeah. Well, you, you know, depending on what's happening in a kid's life, uh, it, it can be very, very, um, influential as far as labeling a kid emotionally in their mind of who they are, how they see themselves, and then really what they think they can or can't do in life. So uh, now, granted, my case, by many accounts, uh, you know, uh, were extreme uh, uh, in some ways, but if a dad and a good, solid home and just looks at their kid and just says, out of anger, you know, you're a loser. Or, you know, ah, it, something that's so derogatory, it can wound that kid's heart. He better make sure he goes back and undoes that. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and that's just kind of for the standard home. But for, for me, because that can make a huge impact. Pain is relative. That's what I say, is relative. But the consequences are different, you know. And for me, I, I'll never forget, I was dunked in a tub by, you know, just just a mean, crazy, evil, drunk stepfather. And, and I'll never forget, he had dumped me in there until I actually passed out. I was seven years, I think I was about seven at the time. And he, he kept dunking me in there, and finally I passed out from lack of oxygen. And I woke up on the bathroom floor, and I'm looking at him, and... Uh, you know, at that point, I'm dazed. I don't. Even, and then I'm trying to process. Oh, what the heck? I'm here. I'm wet on this cold floor. There's a tub. Oh yeah, he was dunking my head under there. And then these were the first words he said: "Boy, don't you ever forget, I'm the one that gives you life." Hmm. And that is, in the moment, it was certainly true because he could have killed me. But yet. In reality, in God's, you know, sovereign, which we can talk about that, it's a lie because he doesn't give me life. God Almighty gives us life, and he's the one that, whatever the circumstance, uh, allows us to, to, to cease. And, and I'll tell you, I had to just learn to work through that as a kid and an adult. Because it, it it causes fear, right. and I think fear is one of the most crippling, tormenting 
debilitating things that a person can suffer from, which causes anxiety, panic. Uh, even if you're in a safe place, you know, you can still be in a fearful place in your mind. So lies based on reality and, and not living to negative labels that other people put on you is extremely important uh, for yourself and then also helping people work through that, speak truth in their life, right. uh, you, you know, and uh, to, to help them out. Yep. And the other idea is the idea of provables and unprovables and dealing with trauma. Where the unprovables, really, you, you've talked about they're the hunting ground of abusers, rapists, molesters. Can you expand on that concept and how people can identify and overcome the kind of unprovable trap? Yeah. You know, for many people who have suffered abuse, the the harsh reality is most abuse is done and um, backed by fear, fear of death or uh, lies, right? Like we talked about where, you know, the, the, the abuser or the perpetrator uh, will tell the person, you know, if you ever tell anybody, I'll kill you or I'll kill someone you love. It's just, just uh, grinding so that in their mind, and then also for children, uh, you know, uh, dissociation is 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 a way our minds work because of trauma as a coping mechanism, and they're varying degrees. Uh, and I would say it like this: uh, um, just the average person dissociates sometimes. You're driving home. You listen to music or you just, you're in your mind just driving and you miss the exit. Mm-hmm. Hey, I mean, you, you, you've taken that exit, you know, time, time, why'd you just miss it? Well, you just, you know, daydreaming. Right. That's a form of dissociation. Now you got to figure when somebody's in a car accident, you know, they actually can't remember the details of the impact many, you know, they go, I don't, I don't really, I don't, I don't really remember what happened. Uh, you know, including being loaded in the ambulance, taken to the hospital. For some people, when it's extreme, right? Right. And um, so these are all ways that people cope. And and even the temporary, this couldn't have happened, you know, is when someone loses someone in a sudden, unexpected, you know, death. And somebody tells, um, you know, you know, your, your spouse just died. Your your son was just killed. Your buddy, who's with the unit, you know, that you were just with, was uh, killed. Um, and it's so overwhelming that our minds sometimes just say, "This is not true. You're lying. This couldn't happen." And it's a state of denial. But that's a form of dissociative. Now you think about those which are normal responses to traumatic events, and then back it up to a child who's being sexually abused by a caregiver or um, a babysitter, a relative, or, or even someone who's raped or, or whatever, the, you know, beaten. A child cannot process that type of trauma. Why is a person doing this to me? I must be bad. There's a... So oftentimes, uh, a, a kid will just let it go, right. blank it out, uh, store it, compartmentalize it, and say, well, this never happened. And what ends up 
reinforcing it is if they have the courage to say, why did you do that? Or tell somebody. And the person goes, no one will ever believe you because there's nobody that witnessed it. That's what I call the improvables. And sometimes a coping way. It's uh, the person or child will just say, well, it never really happened. But the problem is that pain, that fear, that anger, you know, your your mind and your body does know. Uh, And then that's when you start having transference of anger. Later in life, things start getting, you know, you start heading toward Crazyville. Right. Crazy with a K. And I tell people, (laughs) you know, crazy thoughts don't make you crazy, you know. Uh, And that's that's why some people give up because they literally Mm. think they're crazy and there's no hope. But there's always hope. Mm. Oh, my gosh. There's always hope. Oh, there is always hope. What a great way to finish the first part of that interview. Um, Part two will elaborate on that and why Victor thinks there's always hope and how we can bring hope to certain situations and a whole lot more in part two um, that you'll definitely want to download next week's episode to listen to what Victor has to say about that and a whole lot more about his ministry um, in Iraq and a movie that's going to be coming out that that he just finished uh, finished the production of. Um, I have so much that I could talk about on that, but I want to go and hear from you Kelly, what, what did you think about, about Victor there? Wow. I loved, uh, this, the first part of that interview. And I know that uh, people definitely are going to want to listen to the next part as well. But I think the one area that I would like to touch on is just how he highlighted that the biggest threat, uh, to the United States is not kind of that big, obvious thing that we think of terrorism or violence. It's, it's truly the lack of men in the home and the lack of fathers, um, in the home. And, And I just, I think we see that. We've seen the breakdown um, systematically um, and how it affects every part of our culture when uh, we have the breakdown of family and uh, especially men being the men that God has called them to be, to be dads, to be fathers, to be husbands, um, but even more than that, to be actively involved in in their child's life and just showing up. So what about you, Phil? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, it was that, that definitely. Um, and just how he, I love how he just said, you know, man, dads, if you jacked up, if you've messed up, if you've blown up, he said, just catch your breath, humble yourself, apologize. I just love that picture of the humility of the, the dad who's messed up just coming in. And this is coming from a guy who's, whose dad left him and you'll hear more about that next, next week. But this is coming from a guy who gets it, who knows it whose dad did come and do that in his life. Little spoiler, that's how he came to know the Lord. And, and, and that's, that's something that when you hear it from a man who gets it and knows it, it's so powerful. And that, that just really hit me. Um, also how he just said, look, when, when, and he talks to so many young people all over the world. And we're talking, this isn't just an American thing. You know, he's talking to the kids in, in Iraq who have been traumatized by ISIS. And he says things like, when young people and older people alike see that you're not a subject matter expert to come and fix them, but you're actually coming to feel their heart and step into their pain, then there's credibility and trust. That's what's going to cause that credibility and trust. That's something that really hit me. Just 
it's that idea of just coming into them, entering in, and really just listening. And again, as, as we've talked about on the show, that's not necessarily my strength, but it's something that we need to do so much more of in so many aspects of our life. And um, yeah, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, with being a mom, being someone who has, um, you know, adopted a child who's, who has come from a really hard place. And so what are you, what are you thinking? What do you think on that? I think the thing that, you know, I, I think about is just, you know, we live in a very um, isolated society a lot of times and just we don't enter into relationships mm-hmm. with people. And I think it's that same concept of, you know, people don't know what you know until they know that you care. I mean, we've heard that mm-hmm. quote, you know, for years. And uh, I believe that that there's such truth to that. I think we see that. Uh, that's how Jesus ministered. When you read the Gospels, you see that he entered into relationship. He entered into uh, the mess and the muck. And I think um, that's really what changes hearts. And that's really what makes a difference. Um, it's not what you know. It's not what you can quote. Um, it truly is just, I think, coming humbly and coming uh, just with a heart that wants to learn and a heart that just says, you know, I am no better than you. I know, you know, just kind of coming in as a friend and just wanting to be a an advocate that way. So that mm-hmm. definitely are the thoughts that I've been having for sure after listening to this. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's so much more we could talk about, but I, I know next week we'll have a lot to talk about and we can kind of tie up our, our thoughts on the entire interview, um, uh, after next week's interview. But, uh, now we get to go to the, uh, recommendation that Kelly's going to have for us on the Phil and Kelly recommend segment. And so I'm excited, um, to hear this one from Kelly. So Kelly, what you got for us? Well, this is a, it's a children's book. I know I've recommended children's books often, but obviously you see that I'm a mom and I'm also a kids ministry director. So this is kind of the world I walk in. Um, But it's called The Biggest Story by Kevin DeYoung. And it basically is a narrative of the Bible and it just kind of flows like a story um, and it just ta- it just connects the the garden to Jesus and how Jesus came to uh, to crush the snake is kind of what it says. And so um, it's just a, vi- a beautifully illustrated book. Um, I just highly recommend it if we're really for kids of all ages, um, because it's so beautifully illustrated, it will definitely keep their attention. So that would be my recommendation for this week. So we want to thank you guys for tuning in. We want to encourage you to tune back in next week uh, when we do come with part two of uh, this week's interview. And we want to say thanks for the download. And we look forward to hearing your thoughts and your comments. And uh, we'll be back next week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.